grab a seat. Uh, good morning and welcome to Veritas Church. If you're new with us, my name is Ryan. Uh, I serve here as one of the pastors and uh, just want to personally welcome you and uh, let you know we're really, really glad that you're here and you chose to be with us uh, this morning. Uh, if you've got your Bible, open up to Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. Uh, on that table back there, there's some black hardback ones. If you didn't uh, grab one of those on your way in and you don't own a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab one of those and keep that. Uh, that's our gift to you as uh, a church. Um, two weeks from today, we will start our series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, next week, thank you for the uh, one excited person in here. It's going to be a good time. Uh, it's going to be a good time. Next week, uh, we're doing a pulpit swap and so uh, with the Point Church up in Cameron. And so Pastor Darius Holland uh, from the Point Church up in Cameron is going to be here next Sunday at Veritas Preaching. Um, really excited about that, really excited with the partnership we're getting to form uh, with the Point Church. They're another like-minded, gospel-centered, uh, Jesus-preaching church in the kind of greater area of Fayetteville. And so really excited about this opportunity. Please make plans to be here uh, next Sunday for that. Uh, but with that, that kind of left today open as a kind of one-off, standalone type of Sunday for me to just uh, preach something that's really been on my heart. And what's been on my heart over uh, the last little bit has been the Psalms. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of schoolwork on them, and then uh, really a couple years ago, I started trying, and trying is the key word in this sentence, uh, I started trying to read a psalm every day, and so uh, with stops and starts, I usually am able to work through the book of Psalms a couple times a year, and uh, that's a practice I would commend to you. Jesus has done some really uh, amazing things in my own soul and in my own walk with him, uh, just spending time in the Psalms day after day uh, after day. But with that, I thought it would be good for us to uh, spend some time walking through uh, Psalm chapter 40 specifically, and so that's where we're going to be. But where, before we go there, I think we need to do just a little bit of work uh, on how we interpret the Psalms and how we should read them in general, and then we'll apply that to this one uh, as we walk through it. And so when you look at the way uh, that the New Testament authors and then the early church kind of right after them interpreted and read the Psalms, uh, I think we should read the Psalms as words spoken by Jesus. Uh, these are the songs that Jesus sang while he was on earth, but, but even more than that, these are the songs that Jesus inspired. Uh, we'll talk about it more in a little bit, but Hebrews chapter 10 actually quotes from our passage here in Psalm 40, and, and doesn't just say that Jesus fulfilled the words of this psalm, it actually says he spoke the words of this psalm. And, and so in many ways, I think it'd be helpful to think of the psalms like a script that Jesus wrote for himself, uh, that he then came to earth and lived out. Psalms are prophecies spoken by Jesus about who he is and what he's coming to do to earth uh, to save us. They are prophecies spoken by Jesus about Jesus. And so the speaker of this psalm that we're about to read is ultimately uh, Jesus. Uh, but what many in the early church, but especially an early church father named Augustine pointed out, is that when Jesus speaks in the psalms, uh, he doesn't just speak for himself. He actually speaks for us, his church, uh, as well. Uh, in, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how Jesus is the head of the body uh, and the church. We, the church, are his body. And so as the head of his body, Jesus can speak in his own voice in the Psalms, and he can speak in our voice uh, sometimes as well, and oftentimes uh, it's both. Maybe thinking about it like this would help. If I walked up to you right now and I punched you in the shoulder, 
uh, you probably would not say, why did your right hand hit my front deltoid? Like, your, your right hand hit my front deltoid. Why did it do that? Uh, you would probably say, why did you hit me? Right? Like, my hand is part of my body, and your shoulder is part of your body, and so it makes more sense that you would say, why did you hit me, instead of kind of separating our body parts out as if there's something separate and disconnected from us, uh, because they're not. And so as the head of the body, we are not disconnected from him. And so Jesus can speak uh, in our voice in the Psalms as well. And if that's still kind of confusing and unclear, I think it'll become clear as we walk through this together. Uh, but really what this means is that we learn to pray the words of the Psalms by following Jesus, by learning from Jesus and following the pattern that he set out for us. Uh, and so in this psalm, Jesus is going to teach us a few things as we walk through it. Three kind of major movements in this psalm together. We'll see that Jesus teaches us how to rejoice, uh, how to obey, and how to trust. And so let's look at the first five verses together uh, and see how Jesus teaches us how to rejoice. Starting in verse 1, the very word of Christ to us today it speaks to us like this. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So all throughout the Old Testament, the pit is a metaphor for death. And so what Jesus is thanking God for here is for uh, raising him from the pit of death, delivering him from the pit of death in the resurrection. God the Father did not leave Jesus in the pit. He raised him up uh, from the grave and, and put him on a stable foundation and put a new song of praise to God in his mouth. In fact, in Hebrews 2, tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus, he does this. He tells uh, of God's name to his brothers and sisters, and in the midst of the congregation, he sings God's praise. Uh, and after the resurrection, he does this. He appears to the disciples, and he tells them how God has delivered him in the resurrection, and then he commissions them and sends them out to take this good news to all the nations. And what he says here is true, that once this happens, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. When you read the book of Acts, uh, this is exactly what happens. After Jesus pours out his spirit on the church, the church spreads the news and the gospel spreads like wildfire and people are converted in droves as they turn from worshiping other gods to worship the God of Israel, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And look, here we are. 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, as part of the fulfillment of this promise, as proof that many have seen and feared and put their trust in the Lord. And look, the good news in all of this is that because this is Jesus' song, it is now our song as well. Like, this is what has happened to us in salvation. 
The Lord inclined to us, and he heard our cries, and he drew us up out of the pit of sin and destruction that we had freely gotten ourselves into. He put us on a stable foundation. He put a new song of praise to God in our mouths. Look, one of the reasons we come together every week as a people and sing is because we just cannot get over the fact that God would save us, that God would show mercy to us instead of leaving us in the pit of sin and destruction, that we had freely dug for ourselves, that he would show us instead grace, undeserved grace and favor and raise us up to new life with Jesus. Romans 6 says that when Jesus saves us, he unites us to himself in his death and resurrection. And Paul says our old self was crucified with him on the cross, and we've been raised up with him to walk in newness of life. That all of our sins have been forgiven and defeated, that we have been given a new identity and a new power to walk in life and freedom instead of in sin and death. That's a reason to sing, and it's a reason to sing boldly. And so from this, Jesus turns to us in verse 4, and he begins to make an application. He says that those who put their trust in the Lord, who don't turn to the proud and go after astray after a lie, are blessed. And, and what Jesus is hitting on here in these first few verses is really just a fundamental reality that we are all going to put our trust in something. We are all going to find something to praise. In fact, I think this is why God commands us so often in the book of Psalms to praise him. Uh, it's not because God is an egomaniac that needs our praise. God doesn't need us to praise him. We need to praise him because we were made to praise and to glorify something, to give ultimate meaning and value and weight to something. We were made to have something function as the center of our lives, the thing that we build our lives around and center everything else on. Like you can't escape it any more than a fish could learn how to breathe outside of water. And in anything else you give yourself to, anything else you put in that place besides God, either it is going to crush you or you are going to crush it or both. Anything else you put in that place other than God, you're treating as a lie because you're lying to yourself about the weight and value that it should have in your life. And, and so what Jesus is doing here is he's encouraging us to make the Lord our trust, to put God at the center of our lives. Uh, and this is actually how we learn to rejoice in the Lord, because whatever we put at the center of our lives, whatever we give our time and our energy and our attention to, whatever we fix that on, we're naturally going to rejoice in it. We're naturally going to praise it and want to share it and talk about it uh, with others. Like, we, we just can't help it. Uh, for example, many of you know and you've experienced uh, just how incredible of an evangelist I am for Bojangles. Like, I will spread the good news of the Lord's chicken far and wide to anyone who will hear. Uh, I will work it freely into conversations and way too many sermon illustrations because I just want you to experience that joy for yourself. It's too good to keep to myself. Uh, it's the same thing with OU football. Uh, you've been subjected to far too many sermon illustrations and for many of you personal conversations about OU football because I love it and I want to talk about it and for some reason uh, they keep giving me the face mind. Uh, because when you really enjoy something, uh, you're naturally going, when you fix your energy and attention on it, you're naturally going to praise it. 
you're naturally going to sing its praises. You're naturally going to rejoice in it. You're naturally going to want to share it with others uh, so that others can experience that joy because your joy in that thing actually isn't complete until others share in that joy with you. And so if we want to learn how to rejoice in the Lord, if we want to make the Lord our trust, we have to follow the lead of Jesus in verse five and meditate on the Lord's wondrous deeds and thoughts towards us. We have to fix our eyes and our energy and our attention on who God is and what he's done for us and how he loves us. Because when we fix our attention on God and we make him the center of our lives, it's naturally going to lead to praising him and rejoicing in him and wanting to share him with others. It, it, it'll be just too good of news to keep to yourself. And so Jesus teaches us how to rejoice, but the next in this passage we see Jesus also teaches us how to obey. Look back at the text in verse six with me. It says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And so the psalmist begins to talk about the sacrificial system, and he talks about really how that was never what God ultimately wanted. God instituted the sacrificial system as a sign pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus, but he never intended it to be the ultimate thing. Because God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need us to sacrifice bulls and goats. And sacrificing bulls and goats was never going to be the ultimate thing because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't truly be a substitute that could pay for our sins. And on top of that, the sacrifice of bulls and goats couldn't fix our biggest problem, uh, which is our sin uh, and our disobedience. Uh, you see, what God critiques over and over in the Old Testament is offering sacrifices when your heart is far from him and you don't want to obey him in your life at all. I mean, it would have been so easy to go to the tabernacle and to go to the temple and offer the sacrifice of an animal to check off a religious box when your heart is in rebellion against God and you don't actually want anything to do with him just like today, it'd be really easy to go to church on a Sunday to check off a religious box, all the while you have no desire to obey Jesus in any other area of your life at all. God was never after that, and here the psalmist is getting to the heart of the matter. What God is after is our heartfelt obedience to him that flows out of a heart that trusts him. He, he wants all of us completely devoted to him, our whole selves, not just our religious activity. In fact, if you've got an ESV, notice the footnote that it has for verse six. It tells us that this, in Hebrew, this is an idiom that should be translated, ears you have dug for me. And so this verse would read, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but ears you have dug for me. You've carved out ears for me. You've given me ears to hear. This is real similar to that great call of God to his people to obedience in Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema, when he says, hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obedience starts with listening, with ears that are ready to hear and respond to whatever God calls us to do. It starts with this receptive and humble posture of submission of God. I'm listening. Whatever you tell me to do, I am going to do it. Uh, In 1 Samuel, there's a story when King Saul was still the king, uh, God commands him to wipe out the Amalekites in uh, in total because uh, they had tried to wipe out Israel and they were just a horrifically wicked people. Uh, And he tells them specifically, like, don't leave any of their cattle alive, Uh, but Saul goes to war and he leaves the king of the Amalekites alive and he keeps all their cattle back alive as spoils of war. And when the prophet Samuel comes to him and, and finds out about this, he tells Saul, hey, why didn't you obey the Lord? Why didn't you listen to the voice of the Lord? Saul tells him, well, I did it. I kept these cattle alive so that we could sacrifice them and offer them to the Lord. And listen to what Samuel says in response to him in 1 Samuel 15. It says, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great of delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You see, what God is after is our heartfelt obedience. He says rebellion is as bad as the sin of witchcraft. God was never after sacrifices. He was always after obedience, real obedience that flows out of a heart that trusts him and listens to him and is willing to obey what he wants us to do. But the problem is, you and I have not done that. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. They didn't trust God, and so they chose to disobey him, and we have walked in their footsteps ever since. Our our fundamental problem is that we don't listen to the voice of the Lord. We don't trust that he's good and that he's for us, and so we disobey him. And, And no matter how much we might try to justify that disobedience or cover up and make up for that disobedience with religious activities and sacrifices, it's never enough to cover over the fact that we have continually disobeyed the voice of the Lord in our lives, and that deserves judgment which is why Psalm 40 is such good news. I mean, listen again to what the psalmist says here in verses six through eight. He says, I have come to do the will of God, that the law of God, that it's written of him in the scroll of the book, that he delights to do God's will, that the will of God, the law of God is written within his heart. Like, he has ears to hear. He will listen. He will obey where everyone else has failed. And who is speaking here? This is not David. David didn't do this, and the prophecies about a Savior in the Old Testament were not written about David. Uh, What Hebrews 10 tells us is that the person speaking these words here is Jesus. Not just that, it uses the Greek translation of Psalm 40, which kind of paraphrases and interprets this verse. And so it has verse 6 reading as Jesus saying, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but a body you have prepared for me. 
Our, our bodies are the place where the, our obedience to God plays out and takes place. We hear the word of God with our ears, and then we put it into practice, and we obey it with our bodies. And so what we have here in Psalm 40 is Jesus, God the Son, uh, speaking to God the Father before his incarnation about God, how God the Father has prepared a body for him in the incarnation and about how he has come to do God's will now in enduring the incarnation. Look, as God, Jesus cannot obey. Obedience and submission are not categories in the life of God. They do not exist there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have one will, not three separate wills, and so there's no ability for God the Father to command and for Jesus, God the Son, to obey in his deity. But the wonder of the incarnation is that what Jesus could not do as God, he came to do as man. This is what is so shocking about the incarnation, that Jesus, who is very God of very God, equal to the Father in every way, would freely choose to humble himself and take on our humanity and become a man. And not just become a man, become an obedient servant all the way to death. You see, Jesus was not the one who needed to obey. We were the ones who needed to obey. So Jesus comes and takes on our humanity, body and soul, and as a human being, he obeys God fully. As a man, he obeys and trusts God in every area where we have failed. And after living this life of complete obedience, he completes it by willingly and obediently laying his life down on the cross. He lays his life down willingly on the cross, and because he does this, he can now truly become the one who can substitute for us, the true sacrificial lamb who can pay for our sins, and he saves us by his obedience all the way to death. But not only does he save us by his obedience, he also heals our wills and and begins to transform them so that now more and more we are able to, to obey God. We are able to walk in obedience. Through his human obedience, uh, he heals our wills and gives us an example. He teaches us how to obey God and walk after him in obedience. Look, once again, the good news of the gospel is not just that God forgives us of our sins, but that he sets us free from them, that Jesus frees us up so that we don't have to walk in them anymore, so that now we can walk after Jesus in wholehearted obedience and trust of God. Jesus unites us to himself, and he gives us his, his spirit so that now we can follow his example of human obedience to God. And listen, this is good news because obedience is the way that we flourish. Like God made the world, and so I'm pretty sure he knows how it works. If you took a fish out of the water and you put it on the dock uh, and you told the fish, like, hey, fish, go ahead and flop away. You're free now. You'd be lying to that fish, would you not? Like, you, you might be doing something to that fish, but what you're not doing is giving that fish freedom because you're getting it outside of the way it was made and the purpose for which it was made and where it will find flourishing. The same is true with sin. Sin will not set us free. It will only lead us deeper into destruction. But if you and I will increasingly give our whole selves to God, we will flourish under his good rule. Look, because God is good, all of his commands are good. 
Jackie Hill Perry says it like this. She says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. And if he can't sin, then he can't sin against you. And if he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being that there is? Look, God can't sin against us. And so every command of his can only be for our absolute good and flourishing. And so the more that you will live in this posture of humble submission and say, God, you are God and I am not, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it, the more you will flourish. Look, sometimes we overcomplicate the Christian life, but if you don't know what to do next, like read the word of God, listen to what God says, and then obey and put into practice what he tells you to do. Because the more you and I will give our whole selves to God, the more we will flourish. Jesus, he teaches us here how to obey. And then finally in this text, we see that Jesus teaches us how to trust. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great, is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And so the scene uh, seems to switch back here, and Jesus uh, begins to pray for God to deliver him out of the pit. Earlier, it seems as if he was speaking prophetically as if this deliverance had already happened. But here, while he's still in the pit, he trusts God and he asks God and he waits on God to deliver him. And he has confidence that God will. He says, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. He won't forget about me. He will deliver me. And so once again, what we're getting here is really a script of Jesus's life and ministry while he was on the earth. Like Jesus did endure the evils of being handed over to death. His life was snatched away. He was put to death and needed to be delivered from the pit of death in the resurrection. And just like it is here in Psalm 40, what we see while Jesus was on earth is that he predicted and promised his resurrection before his death over and over, multiple times, he told the disciples, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of violent men and be crucified, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And what the resurrection is, it's God the Father's vindication of Jesus. It is God's declaration that Jesus really is who he said he is uh, and that he really is God's chosen Savior. I think a good picture of this is Batman in the Dark Knight. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to ruin it for you, but it's been close to 15 years now. I looked it up. It came out in 2008. It's been close to 15 years now. So if I ruin it for you, that's not on me. That's on you for not having seen it yet. 
Uh, but, but in the dark night, Harvey Dent is one of the heroes of the city, but eventually the Joker is able to corrupt him uh, and turn him evil. And so he goes on this rampage and begins to do all sorts of destructive stuff uh, in the city, but nobody knows that it's him causing all this destruction yet uh, because nobody knows that he's turned into Two-Face yet. And so Batman decides that he will take the fall for Harvey Dent, that he will be the one that looks bad in his place so that the people of the city of Gotham can continue to think that Harvey Dent is a hero and they won't know that he's the one causing all this destruction before their eyes. And so Batman endures all the scorn and hatred that should have been Harvey Dent. Uh, he endures having the entire city of Gotham hate him and think that he's evil uh, to do this. And it isn't until the end of the next movie, until Batman is vindicated, until the entire city of Gotham sees that he was actually the hero that had saved Gotham, that he was the one who was in the right the entire time. This is what happened to Jesus in the resurrection. Those who uh, tried to snatch away his life, those who delighted in his hurt, those who mocked him were put to shame when Jesus was raised from the dead. And I think this also helps explain what Jesus says here in verse 12 when he says that his sins, his iniquities have overtaken him so that he cannot see that they're more numerous than the hairs on his head. Look, Hebrews 10 has already told us the person speaking this psalm is Jesus. And that's authoritative. Like the New Testament authors, they're inspired. They get it right when they interpret the Old Testament. And so we can't get out of this by saying, well, a couple verses earlier it was Jesus speaking, but now it's not Jesus speaking. And so what do we do with this? How can Jesus say this about himself? Well, he doesn't say this because he himself is a sinner, but because he took on our sin. Remember, Jesus is the head and we are the body. If we were to get sick, you know, you might say my stomach hurts, but you probably wouldn't say my stomach is sick. You would say, I'm sick. Just like that, Jesus had no sin of his own, but he took on our sin and paid for it so that we might be freed from it. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God, Jesus was not poor and needy. That's what we were. So that's what he became as a man so that he could save us and set us free from our sins. Our sins, our iniquities had risen so high that he had to die for them, and he did. And because he did, we now get to exchange our sins for his righteousness. We now get his righteousness given to us in our place. Look, and, and the good news about this is that because we are now united to Jesus, his story has now become our story. Wherever he goes, we will follow. We will be where he is. And so he bore the curse of our sin on the cross and, and was put to death, but God delivered him in the resurrection. The resurrection is proof that the check cleared, that, that our sins did not overcome Jesus. He overcame our sin. And because God did not fail to deliver Jesus, because God did not abandon Jesus to the grave, we can live with the absolute confidence that he will not abandon us. You are united to him. He will not lose you. And this is how we gospel ourselves, how we learn to trust in God while we wait for him to deliver us. 
You stop listening to yourself and your doubts and your fears, and you start talking to yourself, and you say, in Jesus, God became poor so that I might become rich, so that I might share in the riches of getting to know him forever. He's already gone to the deepest of depths for me. Why would he quit on me or change his mind about me now? If he did not fail to deliver Jesus from the pit, why would he leave me in the pit? I am united to Jesus. Like this is the encouragement that this psalm leaves us with. It points us towards a deep hope. Like Jesus is teaching us here how to learn to trust God while we wait, because while you are crying out to God, while you are waiting on him to deliver you, when it feels like you're never going to get out of the pit, the resurrection is proof that you are. Where he is, you will be. Where he has gone, you will follow, cling to that hope, no matter how dark things may get. God will deliver you. God will incline towards you and hear your cry. God will take thought for you. He will not restrain his mercy from you. His steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve you. He will raise you up and put a new song of praise in your mouth, a song of praise to our God. If he did not fail to deliver Jesus, he will not fail to deliver you. You are united to Jesus. So we can trust him and we can ask him and we can wait on him until he does. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this good news that you have gone before us and you have united yourself to us so that your story is now our story. And our confidence is not in ourselves or our ability to get things right. Our confidence is in the fact that we are united to you in your death and resurrection, that, that you are our head and we are the body and you will not leave us, that, you, that we will follow you wherever you go. And so Jesus, help us to rest in that hope. Help us to cling to that good news. Help us to learn to rejoice in the Lord, to trust the Lord, to obey the Lord. God, would you give us a spirit to do so? Would you help us to follow after our good King Jesus who has done this for us? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.